0: Welcome to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. My name is Anand Upadhyay, and thanks for joining us. Today's episode is with Mary O'Carroll, the Chief Community Officer at Ironclad, a contract lifecycle management company. Mary comes from a consulting, business, and finance background, and through her career at Oric, Google, and Ironclad, she's become one of the faces of legal operations. It doesn't hurt that she was a founding board member of CLOCK, the corporate legal operations consortium. In this episode, we talk about Mary's start at OREC, working with leaders like Ralph Baxter and Peter Krakauer, to Google, where she built the legal operations team from scratch. She talks about how she put in place process, procedures, and systems to ensure that Google could run a vast portfolio of cases effectively and efficiently, all while they're playing a part in inventing what we now may refer to as internet law. Finally, we talk about Mary's big move to Ironclad. Why did she make this move? And what is she hoping to achieve there? What is Ironclad's vision for growth in the contract lifecycle space? As always, if you like our discussion, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Mary, thank you so much for joining me on the Modern Lawyer podcast. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. So Mary, a lot of our listeners likely know who you are. They likely have read your name in the news very recently because you've made a big move that we're going to talk about. But I want to start, you know, even uh, before that, because a lot of my listeners tell me, you know, the thing that they engage with the most on this podcast is the story of how the guests I have on this podcast who approach the legal industry from a unique perspective, how they got there. So before this, you know, this rise to running legal ops at Google, before this very recent move to the chief community officer at Ironclad, both very high profile, very exciting. I want you to talk about maybe less exciting things, you know, how you got to start. You know, we were talking just before this that we're both uh, graduates of UC Berkeley I commented on how you graduated with a very prestigious business administration major, which for for uh, non-Golden Bears, it's a really hard thing to do. So right away, that caught my eye. It's like, ah, Mario Carroll shows a lot of promise from the beginning. But all jokes aside, how did you get your start? And how did you end up in this place in leadership in this industry? Yeah, it's an interesting story because obviously not a lawyer...
1: And I'm often asked, like, how did you get into this? And how are you so passionate about this? And, you know, what happened? So my background, as you mentioned, I I went to Berkeley and I studied business. Being the daughter of Chinese immigrant parents, you had two options, right? You're either going to be a doctor or you're going to be an investment banker. So graduated, (laughs) went into investment banking, found that really wasn't for me. Went into management consulting found that really wasn't for me and ended up at a international law firm called Orrick. And I had a lot of friends who are lawyers, but I had never heard of OREC. I didn't know what lawyers did for a living. And it was really like my immediate first you know, week on the job that I sort of uncovered, this is going to be my mission in life. Having come from a business background you know, and working with different clients in different industries, you kind of go in and you look for problems, issue spotting, and then you propose solutions and you know try to fix things. And I got to the law firm, and was immediately just struck by the business model and the fact that it was not very aligned with what I would <laughs> think that the clients wanted, and that struck me as really unique. You know, I'd been consulting in, in business for a while, and I'd never seen or heard of another industry that was structured that way. So I was there for a good amount of time working with the COO. And, you know, that was legal operations, but at a law firm. And it was kind of a unique role, even, even back then, to do operations at a law firm. And my role was helping partners structure their matters, I worked on pricing and profitability, staffing compensation structures lateral hire acquisitions office acquisitions uh, all sorts of like profitability
0: models. yeah um, kind of the nuts and bolts right like the you know to use another metaphor like the blocking and tackling like the you know not not the actual law being practiced but everything else related to the business side on that right. point was it appealing to auric to bring in someone who'd worked in in consulting like management consulting like was that their idea for bringing you in like hey let's bring in someone who might have an eye to that or was it was it less less strategic less forward looking it was more like hey this is a smart person let's bring this person in you know that's interesting
1: i've never really thought back that way but i was brought in into the finance organization where i only sat for i think maybe like a couple months before one of the leaders of the finance work sort of discovered me and said, hey, you've got some unique skills here in your financial modeling and the way you can do things. And that's when I sort of transitioned into more of the internal consulting business operations type role.
0: And was that, um, right? I mean, look, I, I um, was a paralegal as early as 2003. And I remember this idea of like, operationalizing law and workflows and process. In my eyes, we were like 10 years out from that. <laughs> i never even heard of that. Was Oryk just early at this? Did you have kind of a visionary boss? Walk me through this. And I know orc has a kind of a, you know, a legacy of kind of visionary leaders in this. I mean, you got Ralph Baxter, you've got Peter Krakauer, you've got a lot of these people, right, who come yeah, out of Oryk yeah. who are now doing... All this other, this other stuff. Are you just another kind of person in that line? So that was the group that I was working with. So worked closely yeah. with
1: Peter and Doug Benson was the CEO. He was my manager at the time. Ralph Baxter was the managing partner of the firm. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I've I've always thought that Oric was really innovative and forward thinking, and and continues to be today. It has that culture. So you know, while I was there, we had launched the global operations center in Wheeling, West Virginia, which of course you know back then was a very big deal and yes. thinking about how to deliver legal services differently and pass on some sort of that savings to the client.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. And so you were reporting to the COO then and the the pessimistic or negative side of me thinks, "Oh, Mary loved this so much because there is so much to be solved, right? Like you went into law and you were like, "Oh my god, like how is this no, and again, I don't want to be dark here, but like, how is this, how are there so many problems and like, there's infinite things for me to solve? Is oh, that is that the right read? Completely true. Yeah, okay.
1: it was fun. It was fun. And thinking about like transformation and change, and there was so much upside for for where I thought the industry could go.
0: Yeah. And so, talk me through your role at Oracle. Your kind of rise at Oracle, and then your move over to Google. What what prompted that? Like, what were the kind of challenges that you were trying to solve more specifically at Oracle?
1: So, I don't know. That, I mean, there were specific challenges, like figuring out how best to price and structure a matter. So it was kind of the beginning of the pricing professional type role. And we would, you know, we would look at how much we could write off at, you know, at the end of the day and the, after the bills came in. And so there was a lot of financial analysis involved. And I was very happy. I I loved the job. I loved working for a company that was risk-taking and willing to be innovative and do things differently. That was really fun. I, I felt like we were sort of forging a path for for law firms. And then one day I got a call from a recruiter at Google and, you know, they said to me, we would, you know, we'd love to hire a legal operations person, basically doing what you're doing at the law firm, but here in-house. And so, you know, the funny thing is I I really wasn't interested at the time I, I told them to Kind of beat it. They <laughs> kept coming back, and I eventually went in. And once I met the people, then I was like, "No, this is for me. I'm totally sold." The people uh,
0: that I met. <laughs> why, 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 did you tell them to beat it? <laughs> what, what about? <laughs> I think a lot I of people will say, big like, on, "Get get a call from a Google recruiter, huh? Like, maybe maybe investigate that." Why did you? Here's, why were you not interested?
1: Here's the beauty of it. I think I was so naive in like the amazingness that you know now I understand Google to be as an employer yeah. and as a company and as an innovator. And I was like perfectly happy in, in my role and, you know, happy to be loyal to to my employer for for life. That's how our generation was raised. Like you worked somewhere for like 20 years, right? But yeah, I just didn't know. And in a way, it was a good thing because I went into my interviews, not that nervous. Whereas I think if I were to interview with Google now, I'd be very, very nervous knowing like the hit rate is is quite small. Anyway, I ended up meeting everyone there. I thought it was uh, an amazing place. And joined the company with you know, pretty much very little understanding of what the job was going to entail. There were about 200 people in the legal department at the time. I figured it'd be like you know, working at a law firm. But the challenges there were, were very different and the culture was different and it was a whole
0: new world so two questions here. Let me start with the first one. And that is, you know, this is maybe one of the few podcasts out there where you're actually going to get some like legal pricing nerds listening. (laughs) And like, I know it sounds crazy, but you're going to get these people. And in a lot of ways, I'm one of these people. And so they're not going to let me move forward here without asking you. What were the kind of legal pricing challenges you were trying to solve at ORC, especially early, right? Because for a lot of people that, that yeah, I'm sure they're going to say, wow, this was way before a lot of like the leaders in the profession were really writing and opining and sharing their thoughts. So what problems was Mary solving at ORC? And this is, you know, make sure that my time frame is right. Is this 2010,
1: 2012? No, I joined Google in 08, So this would have been... Three, oh, three, oh, five, oh, six. Yeah, Got that it. period. Got
0: it. So what kind uh, of problems in legal pricing were you trying to solve? Were you were you trying to, you know, for example, guide Auric towards get, doing more fixed fee and that kind of thing? Like, what, what talk us through those problems.
1: Yeah, there was definitely, I mean, the talk of the billable hour and the alternative fee that goes back a good 20 years. So we were certainly, or maybe even more, we were certainly talking about it then. But one of the things I did was create what is known as the Matter Profitability Report for the firm. And we looked at kind of all the costs that went into each hour of time spent by each timekeeper and and modeled it in a couple of different ways and then would do the Matter Budget and and model that against the inputs of of time that we thought was going to take. And then you were able to figure out what the different levers you could use, such as discounting and staffing ratio changes and realization rates and all of that good, exciting stuff. And we would also talk to clients about alternative fee arrangements and fixed fees. Again, I think it's really similar. Nothing's changed in the last, you know 20 years or so on that conversation where we often found as a firm, you would propose these really client beneficial alternative fee arrangements or creative fee arrangements that, you know, we were sure the client was going to do well financially on. And they would say, that's great. Let's go back to the billable hour. We see that all the time.
0: So I I imagine that you probably got some hate mail from some attorneys at the firm who were like, I'm not a fungible billing unit. Like I'm an artist and a craftsperson. I don't
1: know. I think I was there to help. I think (laughs) I I was there to help.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> got it, got it. But I mean, was part of your job though, kind of trying to understand all the levers that you could yeah. kind of manipulate the firm to increase profitability? Absolutely. Right? What about that? And what about your role at Oric? Did Google find transferable?
1: <laughs>
0: That's a really good
1: question. Um, I think that it was just financial acumen, uh, understanding of the legal industry, and probably not a whole lot other than that, but for the fact that there was this invented role that nobody was well suited for. And how do you find someone to do legal operations when the field
0: didn't exist? Right? Did, and, and so, did you call it legal operations then? I mean, so I think, Kent, Kent yeah. Walker,
1: the general counsel at the time, who's yeah. now the CLO, it, he did call the role legal operations. So, as a result, did he coin that term? I, I don't know. And, and like, I was thinking about this yesterday because. I talk regularly to a bunch of GCs who are trying to hire for legal ops roles. And they often ask me like about the compensation and how they structure, and what kind of people yeah. they should look for. And, and I said, I don't, I, it's, I struggle to understand why legal ops is something we have to sell and why it is so like different. When you've got for years and years, we've had sales ops and marketing ops and finance yeah. ops. Yeah. And like it exists in every other function, yet in legal we were like, what should we call it and what should it do? It's like, it's no different than. Should it
0: exist? Right. Yeah. And so, what's your theory on that? Like, what, what is the resistance in legal?
1: Oh, well, that's a long conversation, but legal hasn't had the pressure to change, yeah. you know, until I don't know how many years ago now, but there was a long period of time. I mean, I, I give a lot of talks where I basically say for like 150 years, the legal profession was stagnant, right? Law firms. Yeah. I came from that business model. It's fantastic. Why would they want to change if it's been working well, right? It's not broken. And there was no pressure on the law firm to adopt technology, to adopt process improvement. Things have been going great. And the legal departments, the general counsel role is, has not been around for that long. Yeah, and right. what it was originally Created for that changed over time, right? So I think you know when I got my role, 2008, a lot of stuff started changing. Maybe a few years before that about the role of the general counsel and needing to be much more strategic. And then we had the great recession in 2008 when I was hired, right? So a lot more pressure from CFOs to run things like a business. And of course, then they started to think, I'm now in charge of tech and tooling and strategic planning and professional development and managing people and guess what? I learned none of that in school. I learned none of that at the law firm. And I probably have no interest in that because that's not why I became a
0: lawyer. And you wouldn't have (laughs) learned it in law school either, right? Like it's just not taught. Exactly. And so, you know, that gave birth to
1: the rise of legal operations because all these general counsel had these extra functions that they had to manage and why not hire someone
0: skilled to do that? I should say it wasn't taught at the time. We're going to get into it. But with Clock and Clock Institute and all of those, those things, it is now taught, uh, but it wasn't taught then. So when you were hired at Google, were you hired as a result of the recession? Like, was there some economic impact that Google felt or thought that it was going to feel or that the GC, now CLO, thought that he was going to feel that made him think, Okay, uh, we're gonna need to tighten the belt a bit. We're gonna need to get, you know, do do legal work better, faster, cheaper. I need someone who is gonna be at the helm of that.
1: Interestingly, I actually don't think it was financial and economic pressure for for RGC. It was more hyper growth, and we need someone to put process and procedures yeah. and systems in place to scale because we were growing so quickly.
0: What kind of legal work? I mean if, if you can say, right? I mean, what kind of legal work was Google doing then, generally speaking, that required so much scale and workflow automation and process automation and and the mind of Mary O'Carroll, right? Like what what about that that period of time required your skill set?
1: Well, certainly the company was growing at like lightning pace, right? So oh, yep. think about just the commercial contracting that needed to take place is enormous. But, you know, the fun part, and I think why they attracted so many amazing lawyers that I got to work with at that time is Google was pretty much inventing internet law, right? There was no precedent for like the copyright law and the privacy laws and the trademark laws, like all these things that patent law, you know, that that were exploding at the time and regulations had to be defined and, and legal precedent had to be defined. And so every every litigation case was really important, right? Because we were setting the stage for the future. So it was a really, it continues to be, I mean, there's still there's still a lot of work to be done, continues to be a lot of work, but it's also... You know, now that it's grown and changed, you know, when I started, it was a search company. Of course, now it does a million other things as well. Right. It expanded. So we, you know, they created the, the role of the product council, which is very common now in a lot of legal departments. But again, it's uniquely in an international company and it's uniquely broad in its challenges, right? Like we have privacy issues, real estate, MA, commercial, IP. I mean, it just goes on and on and on.
0: What were the first set of challenges that you tackled at Google, right? When you started there, uh, and and it seems like you had a pretty broad remit, what did you strike out to do first?
1: So 100% focus was outside counsel management and just the fact that we were spending a ton, a ton of money with, with outside counsel, which is to be expected for, you know, a, a hyper growth tech company forging internet law at that time, but we didn't have visibility over where the money was being spent, how much of it with who, on what, you know, getting that value analysis. And so that's where I spent the initial part of my career at Google.
0: And I think that would maybe surprise a lot of people who are not in legal, right? That like a company as sophisticated as Google, and I'm sure every other company that was as sophisticated as Google at the time, is spending huge amounts of money on outside counsel. And just paying bills and not really asking the question, like, was this a good service? Like, was it? Did they, did they do good work? Should we go back to them? Right, right, right. Like, is that is that kind of how you approach things? Am I approaching it too like simplistically? Like, it, it, did you have to ask the the like the questions that were that fundamental?
1: Oh my gosh, yes. I asked where the budgets were. I was told there were no budgets. I you know I asked how matters were being tracked. They said using post its. I mean, it was really really just. A startup and moving super fast, and a bunch of smart people getting work done really well, but there was not a lot of structure. There was not a lot of process. Like people just picked up the phone and called law firms and started working with them.
0: And so, uh, talk me through your kind of uh, career path at Google, right? Like because you started on as the first person in legal ops at Google. You've recently left Google. You're certainly, when you left Google, you weren't the only legal ops person at Google. You obviously built a team. How was that rise? And how how was it joining Google as like a kind of individual contributor, legal ops person in this kind of like murky area that was still not fleshed out? And now you leave Google and legal ops is, I mean... If you don't know what legal ops is in the legal industry and in legal tech, you just haven't been paying attention to like anything for like <laughs> five years, because that's just been the talk of the industry. How did you get from point A to point B? Yeah. So
1: I would say the experience was, was awesome. I learned so much. I got to innovate. I got to try new things. The culture was fantastic. The people I worked with was fantastic. And it was building. Like I really learned that I love to build things. And we were building a team, where we're building processes, where we're building what a high-functioning, scalable legal department of the future should look like. And so our role, you know, we started with outside counsel management, expanded to vendor management. We started investing in systems and tools. So then we expanded there, knowledge management. We realized that we also turned around and had a huge team of internal like legal team members and some process improvement and structure needed to be put in there so we hired a bunch of ex consultants we started a data analytics team we put in a learning and development team that focused on creating self-service tools and repositories of you know all of our policies and processes so it it grew quite a bit and ended up with probably over 60 people with full headcount at the end of the day. So, and I couldn't have done it alone. So the the parallel story that happens with, of course, my Google journey is the clock story and all the wonderful people who helped me along the way. And that's why I've been so passionate about clock and about community, because I know that it truly is, you know, all of us together helping each other out is better outcomes for not just ourselves,
0: but, you know, a whole industry. I want to get to clock. Before we get to that, I've got a question about, you know, these kind of um, greater tracking control, you know, understanding of value of outside counsel. Did you get pushback, right? From some firms, I'm sure there's winners and losers in this, right? If you genuinely do great work for Google and you do it at a reasonable price, I'm sure you're looking at the work that you did at Google and saying, awesome, that's great for us. We're the best and Mary's work is going to reveal that. Whereas if you're some other firm, you might be sweating a bit saying, "Uh uh-oh, I don't know whether we're the best or doing the best work. How was that received by outside counsel?
1: Yeah, of course we got some pushback from outside counsel. And it was, you know, to be honest, I think measuring quality is still something that this industry hasn't cracked. And so we never really had the ability to say, you know, your quality isn't as good as, you know, this other partner. But we were able to look at other other qualitative metrics as well as pricing and rates and budgets. And so we did RFPs. And, you know, along, along the journey, there is going to be friction, right? Anywhere you move from, I'm buddies with the people at, at Google and the attorneys call me and I can charge whatever I want. And that's yeah. a good day to all of a sudden your team's involved and (laughs) I've got to explain what I'm going to spend and why I've blown the budgets and, you know, why we added so many timekeepers to this. So of course, of course there's pushback, but, you know, I think it's, it's really important to have the relationship with your own in-house counsel and your general counsel to have their support, right? When you go, when you go to bat with the law firms, you can play bad cop, but you need the support of uh, the good cops as well.
0: Did you expand the total number of law firms that Google kind of farms work out to in your tenure at Google? Like, was that a part of your thinking that instead of working with five firms, you can save money and do higher quality work dealing with 25 firms? That's a kind of a a trend I've seen. I don't know whether that's something that, that you saw or was something that was kind of within your job description for want of a better word at Google. So, during the time that I was there, the number of firms that we worked with
1: around the world actually exploded. And that was a consequence of entering new markets, entering new products, entering new, you know, different areas. And along the way, our team was always actually focused on culling that number down, not increasing it. Like we always had far too many firms and wanted to invest more time in the relationships and understanding. With less firms because it's it's way more administrative time to manage you know the hundreds of firms that we did.
0: Did you have to overcome any sort of culture of you know so and so firm is the go to firm, but based on your analysis and your metrics, hey maybe we shouldn't go to that firm all the time. And and, and you know did, did did that hurt any feelings within Google or or certainly at the outside counsel firm?
1: Yeah, so we always let our lead attorneys choose the firm that they wanted to go with. And right. we saw ourselves as a resource. And look, every legal operations group, uh, director and general counsel are gonna have a different philosophy on that. But at least the culture at Google was to empower the legal team members to choose the firms that they wanted to. And we would support them on getting the best pricing and doing the budgeting and you know, giving them options, but ultimately they could choose. It seems
0: like at some at some points you had to be the bad cop. Oh, many points. <laughs> Daily. <laughs> <laughs> I like how you handle that with a straight face like, yes. Yeah, that's, much that's all the time. <laughs> hourly. Hourly. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That that seems that in and of itself seems like a valuable role for legal ops at a company, right? You know, you're the lead attorney at Google. You don't want to play hardball with like the partner at I 100%. mean we've been talking about Oric. So the partner at Oric, right? Like that's uncomfortable. Like yeah. you're going to need that working relationship. That's right. That's right. I had on Toby Brown from Perkins Coie on my podcast. Among the things he's working on is the Legal Value Network. Brilliant, brilliant guy. And he says that at Perkins Coie, oftentimes that is his highest calling, is to be the bad cop and protect the partner from having to do this stuff. So interesting thematically. Let's move over to clock because you mentioned this, right? And well, let me just ask you the open-ended question. Why did you start working towards this organization that seems to me to, to have a, a goal of spreading the word about legal ops, educating about legal ops, creating a community uh, in legal ops. Because legal ops is the coolest.
1: <laughs> no, I, I mean, honestly, uh, you know, I kind of touched on it in the beginning. When, when many of us were in these roles in the early days and there were no job descriptions, we kind of all thought we were alone making this up as we went along. There were no playbooks, there were no best practices, and there was no way to ask other legal departments, like, how are you guys doing this? And when a few of us found each other in Silicon Valley, you know, I was personally surprised that there were other people that had the same made up role that I had that were actually working on the same things. It was It was such uh, an amazing feeling to walk into a room after feeling like you were making things up as you went along and going it alone and saying, oh my God, you're working on that too? How are you getting law firms to do that? Or how are you looking at your uh, metrics? And what software are you thinking about? And what did you think of this? And how did you get your lawyers to change? And to have a whole room of people like chiming in and commiserating, but bonding and then sharing, that was the real game changer uh, of the clock culture is from the very beginning, there was an established culture of, here's everything I've done. Here's my template. Here's my RFP. Don't reinvent the wheel. Just take what I have. And you go solve a different problem and share it back with me. So it was like this collective family of people who were all in it together. And I think that was just the birth, you know, of this real sense
0: of belonging to Clock. How how many folks in early legal ops, like you and and your colleagues in Silicon Valley that you spoke of, how many of you all were, and I'm going to use the dreaded term again, non-lawyers versus lawyers? I actually think it was a pretty half-half even back then. Yeah. Do you think the fact that there is such a large number of, again, terrible term, but non lawyers, do you think there was, because there were so many non lawyers, it spurred this collaboration and sharing? I mean, it seems that a lot of lawyers are nervous about sharing that, right? Like lawyers have kind of a, a, you know, painting with a broad brush here, but like a confidential culture where it seems like a lot of other, you know, work cultures, engineers mainly, right? Like software engineers, data scientists are very like open-minded and have this open source culture. Do you think that that benefited CLOCK? Because it seems like a very open culture.
1: So I totally agree with you on that, except for the fact that the lawyers even today who tend to love legal ops and to find that as their passion are those who also have that sort of culture and, and wanting to be collaborative and sharing versus I do think that there are lawyers and it's not their fault, make them, make them great lawyers. Is that training that, you know, you work in a silo, you don't share your information like that is, I, I think there's something to that, but yeah, certainly the folks that were in the room and the folks who gravitate towards legal ops do want to share.
0: It makes sense. What do you, and, and obviously we've talked about Google, we're talking about clock now, we're going to get to ironclad, which I'm, I'm very excited to talk about at, at length and your, and the work you're going to do there. But just, just homing in on clock, where do you think clock is going? You know, where do you think clock will be in 10 or 15 years? And what is the kind of goal and objective of clock currently? Yeah.
1: So I love clock. I mean, that's, that's the hardest thing to walk away from. And it's an amazing organization that I think will continue to flourish and grow. I think the goals are, are twofold. And one was obviously to help people with their day-to-day roles, right? That tactical information sharing that we have. But there was another piece that we always had in our minds about just greater industry transformation. Like we, we know that there are so many things that we talked about in the first few minutes of this conversation in the industry that need, need to change and to be modernized and transformed, And we really think that that comes from the in-house teams where there is pressure to do things better, faster, optimally to le- leverage technology. And so the change is going to be driven from in-house legal departments and it's the legal operations professionals that are really tasked with making that business transformation happen. So there's going to be more of it. I think many of us in these roles, we want to see legal ops continue to flourish and grow. So from a clock perspective, I think we've just started, right? We we're Almost all over the US, like you see us in companies big and small in every industry in the US, fast followed by UK and Europe and Australia and the rest of the world is coming on strong, you know, maybe a few years behind us, but they're all starting to get really interested And the amazing thing about this last year of COVID and working from home was, uh, you know, I was able to get out and talk to audiences all over the world, in Singapore, in Poland, in New Zealand, in Australia, in Africa, you know, like all in the same week without leaving you know, this desk. But that's just, you know, the more people are interested in it and want to hear about the impact of it, they want to hire for it and they see how great it is. And then it just continues to grow from there. So yeah, I think clock has a, a lot of runway to continue to make an impact.
0: And, and recently, CLOCK has opened itself up to participation from uh, law firms as well. I think that was several months ago. Do you see the kind of legal, legal operations mindset and the legal operations core competencies spreading fairly fast at law firms as well?
1: Yeah, so we we opened up to law firms a while back when I was still president. And then we recently opened up to the entire ecosystem Last year as well, and so anyone—law firms, law schools, legal tech providers—so I can still be a member, which yes. is great. But yeah, it, it is really important that we had all the voices in the room, and absolutely, there are people passionate about this in every you know far corner of the legal ecosystem that are passionate about progressing things, and there will be change.
0: Do you think we're going to start seeing? You know, I mean, obviously, Google brought you over from OREC to to lead their legal ops team. Uh, or to start their legal ops team. Do you think you're, we're going to start seeing things go the other way also? It seems to me that if you're an 100 law firm, bringing over a Mary O'Carroll from Google to be like the COO of your law firm could be pretty smart and could yeah. potentially increase the pie and increase the profits at the firm substantially. Are you seeing that as a trend? Yes, absolutely. And we're seeing a
1: lot of movement just throughout the ecosystem. I mean, my own own jump to a a legal tech provider is one example of that. But, you know, we couldn't have had that, let's say, several years ago because you didn't have seasoned legal ops people, you know, five years ago. You needed to give it time to have people get that in-house experience and see how things work. And now be able to now move around the ecosystem and add value back with the customer or client perspective to the law firms, to the law schools, to the tech providers and consultants
0: and so on. Yeah, it makes sense. We're gonna make a hard shift now to Ironclad. Uh, this is, I think, what a lot of a lot of people are gonna say. Like, yeah, you started asking about Ironclad thirty minutes in. Why'd you do that? <laughs> well, there's a lot to cover here, folks. All right, but I wanna I wanna start talking about Ironclad now. First of all, <laughs> what is Ironclad? Uh, we we have you're you're the first person from Ironclad on this podcast. I've known about Ironclad for a while. You know, generally know the team up to some pretty amazing things, and they've you know they've been uh, uh, responsible for some some eye-popping headlines as far as big raises, big moves. First of all, start with what is Ironclad?
1: Ironclad is a contracting lifecycle management company, so traditionally known as a CLM, but it is one of the, what we call next generation CLMs. And what we focus on at Ironclad, we call it digital contracting. So a little bit different and much more modern take to
0: traditional CLM. Got it. And in layman's terms now, right? I mean so so contract management, I think a lot of people can conjure up images of what that might be, but what problems is Ironclad trying to solve? Well, let me start there and then we're going to get to why you decided to make the move over. But what what kind of discrete problems occurring at companies is is Ironclad uh, trying to solve?
1: Yeah, well, I'll even take it a step back and talk about um sealum generally, right? Anyone who's in our space, you cannot ignore the amount of buzz and investment and startups and you know, everything technology related is contracting right now. And I just spoke with, you know, some of the big four consultancies. And they, you know, I often call contracting the 80% problem because. It is in every company, every, you know, geography, every industry. And I was saying that to someone the other day and they said, actually, it's more like the 95% problem. Like all we hear about as consultants right now is contracts, contracts, contracts. And so why is that? Well, if you think about, you know, contracting the way it works right now, as we already said, right, the the market is huge. It's every, every company has contracts. It doesn't matter what field you're in or what geography you're in. And I think that if you would ask any company or any person who touches contract what they think of the process or how it's going so far, I would almost bet that 100% of them would tell you that it sucks, right? Mm -hmm. It is not a great experience. It's not a smooth process. It's not efficient. And legal departments get a really bad reputation. We are often known as the office of no or where things slow down and things go to die. And, And that's not a result of our lawyers and that's not a result of our litigation it's not a result of our ip process it is a result of our contracting process so long way of saying this is broken and there's a huge opportunity to fix it right we've we've lost
0: track of the original purpose of contracting it seems to me i mean look i was i was a litigator in my you know half a dozen years of practice and so contracts were like exhibit D or whatever, you know, like I never actually ha- actually handled the, the contracting itself. I kind of took over when contracts went haywire and they were breached or whatever. But it strikes me in like a pre-ironclad world or a pre-CLM generally world, you know, imagine a company like Walmart or something, right? Like this massive company, global company. Where you could go to this, the GC maybe 15, 20 years ago, and not to you know spotlight Walmart or something, it could be any company, and ask them, What are all of the liabilities and obligations you have in all of your contracts? And it might take them like months to find out, Uh, and they might not even do a complete and good job with it because it's such a hard problem. First of all, what took so long? I mean, this, this is a 95% problem. What, what took so long in, so, in your life? So many things. You know, what
1: brings us to this magical point in time where I, I think things are going to change and change quickly? You know, it goes back to the good old role of legal operations, right? You needed people to start caring about efficiency and data and running the legal department and helping the business function faster and more efficiently. Contracts just became this like almost administrative Burden this friction that would happen that you know no longer helps you execute business and generate revenue quickly. It, it it's like you have to go through this contracting process, and then we take that thing, we shove it in a box, and we never look at it again unless right. we have to. Right. Right. And there's so much that can be unlocked from that. And I think legal departments, legal ops professionals, are starting to say, "Hey, the scale and the speed of business is increasing." really you know, exponentially fast and we can't keep up with that if we don't put some tech and some systems in place. And so that's, you know, CLM at its core is to help improve that process, to make it more smooth, to make things go faster. I think what next generation CLM does and why I'm so excited about Ironclad is they're not just taking what I think is a very broken process and taking technology to enable that broken process and make it maybe just a little bit faster actually trying to rethink the entire purpose of the contract, right? And make it digital and make it searchable and make it make the data surfacable in a way that it can actually benefit the rest of the company. And to me, that is like thrilling and super exciting. And, and that's kind of why I'm here.
0: So So interesting. So interesting. I mean, what are some ways that Ironclad seeks to do that? And I know you're relatively new at, at Ironclad, but what are ways in which they're trying to Like digitize contracts and make contracts more transparent, make contracts more easy to understand across the org and useful across the org. Like what tools are they using to do that?
1: Yeah, so the life cycle of the contract is is similar, but there are a few things that I think differentiate Ironclad from others. And you're right, I'm not in product or in sales. So forgive me, I'm (laughs) fairly new here. But I but I have been watching this company. From the side you know as a as a potential customer for years and years and years and as a clock president. so I've tried to stay on top of things. so I'll say it's a few things. they have something called workflow designer, which I think is super powerful. This is like a self-service tool where legal ops or contracts managers, whoever is touching the system can actually create and generate and edit, Contracts, contracts for generation, like template sort of workflow automation on that on that front. And what's really powerful and different about that is that you're empowering the legal department to do things themselves. And we yeah. have seen many other companies where you have to pay you know, lots of money to get service from that vendor or from a consulting firm to help you with the code behind it and to change just one word in your template is going to be like this very painful process And again, wanted to speed up that and to empower folks to be creative and to innovate and to to make things happen themselves. They think about collaboration a bit differently. And I think even in just the last year, we've seen how important real-time live in the browser collaboration is. And so there is a, a native DocX editor, which I think is also unique. But... The features aside, there's a couple of things that I think are truly fantastic about the company, and what drew me to them really was the fact that like every customer I talk to raves about their experience, and this is this is not a minor thing. Like I've been in this world for a long time, I've talked to customers about all sorts of technology, and, and quite frankly, the clock universe. Like we love to bond over how much we hate so much of our providers and how things are not going well and how we want to tear our hair out. And like, what is the workaround that you have for this, you know, limitation? But you don't find that with Ironclad customers. And a lot of that is because it's an easy to use tool. It's, you can figure out how to use it without training. Uh, The adoption is high because of that. And the customer success team that supports your journey is incredible. And then what we're doing on the community front which I'm sure we'll get to next. Yes, kind of just doubles doubles down on that experience and making the customer
0: journey so successful. So that's exactly where we're going next. You're you were hired on as a chief community officer, and you know, in our last call, I asked you the question. You know, was this a title that Ironclad just kind of kind of cooked up? And I of course of course know the answer to this question. But is this a, is this a title that that Ironclad kind of cooked up because they really wanted? Mary O'Carroll to join Ironclad, right? And so it's just like Mary, whatever title you want, just come <laughs> join us. We'll hire you. Just take whatever C-, C level title, right? Was that how they approached it? Obviously, I'm I'm asking this question in a ridiculous way, but what's your response to that?
1: Yes, so so definitely not. And I will adamantly say that I would not have taken the role if that was the case. And I was. Uh, I have been approached by several other companies over the last year, you know, with C-level roles that I felt were kind of in that vein, in that spirit. But like I said, I've been a huge fan of Ironclad. This is really the only company in the legal tech space that I probably would have chosen to to work for. But they presented me with the idea of a chief community officer role. And it just made so much sense. And and look, they've been thinking about this for some time. And if you have followed the company at all, you know that like the company has put community at the center of everything in its DNA from the very start. Like they had these community dinners and local events and rooftop law school. All that existed before I got there. You know, bringing me in is to kind of double down on that, taking the community to the next level. And so, no, it it was not not a made up role. But they've been thinking about it for a while. And the way they positioned it to me was that. They thought I was a perfect fit. I couldn't agree more. I think it's it's a match made in heaven.
0: And, and so what is going to be your role going forward? I mean, what does it mean to be the chief community officer? Like, what are your task roles? Where would you like to, to take the company in the next few years under your, your leadership?
1: Yeah, great question. One that I get a lot these days because it is kind of still a new uh, role even in the community industry, although it's it's exploding. Com- the community has a lot of parallels to parallels to legal ops, which I think is just very interesting in the way that it's exploding now. But my goal, quite simply, is to create the world's leading community that is focused on unlocking the value of digital contracts. So w- what does that mean, right? So it's a lot of buzzwords, practically speaking. So I think it's twofold, First, it's about creating more ways to support our customers. So in, in a lot of ways, Iron Cloud is kind of unique in a product in that workflow designer that I kind of told you about. It has this feature that empowers users to be creative, to build, to launch kind of things. There's contract generation in a very self-service way. And you've talked about like GitHub and some of these dev communities out there where people are able to share with, with each other. And we realize that like the benefit of that is the creativity, the innovation, the change is gonna come from our customers. And we wanna be able to showcase them, let them share with one another, let them learn from one another. And in turn, that's gonna make them more successful in their companies, in their deployments. And so it's just another way to help people get value from our platform. I've built communities before, obviously in in Clock, right? So I've seen the work be successful firsthand. And, And the idea really is quite simple, right? If you can connect all these people to each other, then you have something a lot more powerful. You've got a community platform that's proliferating value out to every person that's part of it. So now the customers of Ironclad are not just buying a piece of software, you're getting entrance to like an entire network of people that are here to support you, to make you more successful. So that's the first bit, but there's more. (laughs) So of course, I'm not just interested in helping people do their day jobs. You know, I have to bring along this like, global mission along with it, right? Of course I do. So the meta sort of overarching strategic plan is to build this community of professionals who are really establishing like a new standard for business contracting in their companies, which is what we call digital contracting. And so my vision, Ironclad's vision is to turn contracting from that siloed, messy, expensive, slow process into a source of operational intelligence not just for legal, but for the entire business. And so we want to elevate all the people that are working with contracts. And that's like big, ambitious transformational change. And from my experience, I know that that kind of change doesn't happen with just software, unfortunately, right? True transformational change is going to require people, And the power of many people is stronger than the power of one. So learning from each other, sharing information, solving problems together is how we're going to create new standards, new best practices, and really fix what's broken about contracting in modern organizations. And so that's really community and how we're going to achieve the ambitious goals at
0: Ironclad. That's amazing. I mean, it occurred to me as you were speaking that you you've already kind of been the chief community officer of Clock, right? I mean, you're you're that you're that person in this organization that you've built. You mentioned GitHub and to to some of our listeners who might not know what GitHub is, it's a place that software engineers can go and kind of in this open source environment, add code either in like kind of uh, company-based organizations or just purely public and slowly differentiate themselves or distinguish themselves as experts in a certain kind of code or a certain type of code base, et cetera. Is that kind of, I mean, I don't want to take that metaphor too far, but do you kind of see that you know, what I just described as applying to contracting at a certain company, you know, we've talked about Walmart, you know, you've got like the the attorney in Walmart who just, you know, is in charge of a lot of these kind of like within Walmart open source contract projects. And so anyone, whether they're in logistics or legal or whatever, risk management can go in and take a look at these these kinds of pieces of work that this person's done. Yeah, that, that's
1: sort of the ultimate goal. I mean, I don't think I'll be able to do that on day one, but that is where I want to take things. So it's everything from, you know, GitHub is also a place where people go, I've got this problem, I can't figure out yes. how to do this, right? And other people kind of help them out or show them how they've done things. So that's part of it. But absolutely also showcasing, like, here's how I'm doing my influencer agreements at my company. And here's how I got everyone to get around this new way of doing it and, and showcasing them and then having others get ideas from that and implementing that in their own companies and just seeing that sort of community-led growth happen.
0: It's a big a big challenge, a big challenge. Uh, I could see why they they wanted you to to tackle it. Um I know we're running out of time. I've got one last question for you here, Mary. And that is you know, we've talked about your kind of journey in the legal industry. We've talked about all kinds of market forces and pricing and now what you want to do it at ironclad and the, the, your your kind of toolkit to to do it, Zooming way out from all of that, looking at this from thirty five thousand feet. What are some predictions that you could make about the legal industry in 10 or 20 years from now? An intentionally broad question, but what's your take? Oh my gosh, there's
1: going to be so, so many changes. And I guess I think about that, my head spins because we are in this super exciting time where we're actually defining the future, right? And the stuff that we do is going to matter as we look back in 20 years. But I, I believe that the way legal services are delivered are going to be completely different, possibly unrecognizable from the way they are today, which has trickle-down effects on everything from the technology platforms that are going to come out, the investment that's going to go into this area, the way law schools work, right? They're teaching for a certain um, lawyer of today, but not the lawyer of tomorrow. And what are the new roles that are going to emerge? You don't just have to be a lawyer. There's legal technologist roles. There's legal project management roles. There's data analytics roles. There's I mean, it goes legal operations, right? It goes on and on and on. And so I think the possibilities are endless and super excited to see, you know, the disaggregation of work, the entrance of new players, the right sourcing of the
0: actual demand and the work that has to get done. It's going to be fun. Awesome. Mary, uh, as always, a very kind of broad-ranging and lofty conversation we've had here. It's been a lot of fun. Congratulations on your your recent move to Chief Community Officer at Ironclad. We'll be watching your work and certainly the work of Ironclad.
1: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. We always love hearing from you and we highly value your feedback. Reach out to me at at text.com. Tweeted us with the hashtag ModernLawyer, and check us out at ModernLawyerPodcast.com. We hope you join us for our next episode. Special thanks to the Case Text team, as well as our audio engineer, Brian Becker. See you soon.